So the title of today's talk is Not Guilty. And we'll start our main reading uh, shortly. But first, let's just have a few verses which remind us why the innocence of the Lord Jesus is so important, why it's critical that he was not guilty. First, a couple of the many verses which tell us clearly that Jesus never sinned. Uh, Hebrews 4 and 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. We know that verse well, don't we? Uh, secondly, um, Peter, um, and I think Peter's quoting Isaiah 53 here, uh, 1 Peter 2 and 22, Peter wrote, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So a couple of verses that tell us that Jesus never sinned. Secondly, uh, a verse which implies why it matters that Jesus didn't sin. And that's because it's a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system where the animals offered had to be without defect. And the reason for that, apart from the fact that it was really inconceivable that people should give to the Lord second best, but it was also because the sacrifices of the Old Testament foreshadowed the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And Peter, again, says in 1 Peter 1, you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your, from your ancestors with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And then thirdly, a verse which makes it all the more clear why Jesus had to be sinless, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it was critical that God could punish a sinless, his sinless son, so that we could be saved, so that he could be punished instead of us. So, a couple of verses, a few verses which indicate why it's important that Jesus was not guilty. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, our talk, we're coming to the end of our series of talks on Luke, but our talk uh, focused on Jesus being betrayed and arrested. This week, we see him on trial. But not the kind of fair trial that our courts um, try to achieve, he wasn't regarded as innocent unless proven guilty. He wasn't even regarded as guilty unless proven innocent. Because the Jewish leaders had decided that he was guilty even if he was proved innocent. How many trials did they take to get to that point? Well, I'm going to suggest that there were five trials, at least five that I'm going to talk about um, today. Let's look at them each in turn. The first one was unofficial, an unofficial Jewish trial, and it happened by night at the high priest's house. And Luke doesn't really say anything about it, um, but I'd like to cover it just for the sake of completeness and because, so I can get my count of five. Um, so we're going to go to Mark's Gospel just for this uh, one reading. So I'm in Mark chapter 14, and I'm reading from verse 53. So this was right after Jesus was arrested. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. 
Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet not even their testimony agreed. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he said. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. So, I said this was the first trial. Um, arguably, it wasn't a trial at all. We might call this a, a pre-trial. But they, they asked questions and they came to a conclusion, so I'm going to call it a trial. And they were looking to build their case and work out what evidence that they would, they would use later when it came to the first official trial, and that's where, where, where Luke um, breaks in in the morning. So they were looking for evidence, but as we read in verse 55, um, they didn't find any. And then, as it said in verse 56 and 59, even when they tried to make stuff up about him, um, these false testimonies, they couldn't even agree on what kind of lies they were going to um, tell. So there was no case to answer. It was, it, it was obvious that there was no case. And then there was that especially brutal part of the trial, um, which was his treatment by the guards. Now, these weren't Roman guards, um, I don't believe. These were the temple guards that had been involved in the arrest. Um, these were Levites who served the, um, the Council of Elders. And it, it, it seems to me that they um, decided that they would make up for the weakness in the intellectual argument by using force instead. And it was widely regarded that prophets had second vision. They didn't need to see things to be able to know things. So they thought they'd have this game, blind man's buff. And, you know, punch him and ask him to say which one of them had hit him. Um, and of course, he didn't answer them then, but I, I suspect that maybe he'll answer them one day. But Luke picks up the story, so we're, we're, we're now back in, we're into Luke 22 now. Um, and Luke starts the, the next morning, and it's when we get what seems to be the first official trial, which I'm going to call trial, trial 2. Now, many of the same people were there, um, elders, members of the Sanhedrin, but this was official in the sense that the Council of Elders, the Sanhedrin, were properly convened. 
Um, so there seemed to be a, 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 a requirement for the, for the Sanhedrin to be convened to hear a case um, properly. Now the Sanhedrin, they had judicial powers. They had delegated powers from Rome. They couldn't execute anyone, but they could, um, they could try other cases and um, especially um, local Jewish, Jewish affairs. And it seems that after a whole night of questioning, the best official question um, or charge that they could come up with was the one in verse 67, which we'll read in a moment. Um, and then when they hear how Jesus responds to that one, they then move on to the bigger question, which we get in verse 70. So watch out for those, because I'm going to read now from uh, verse 66 of Luke 22. At daybreak, the council of elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard from his own lips. Interesting, this, this was the only thing <laughs> that he was guilty of. Uh, guilty in the broader sense of the word, of being the Son of God. All their questions have led them to the one key truth that should have led to their worship and their repentance. But instead, in their unbelief, they decided to call it blasphemy. So trial number three was the one before Pilate, the, Roman, the first of the Roman trials. And Pilate, as we know, was the, the Roman governor of Judea. He was the only person in Jerusalem with the authority to have Jesus executed. Now, Pilate had no interest, no interest at all <coughs> in Jewish blasphemy charges. He was a Roman. He didn't care. So they needed new charges. Let's read chapter 23 from verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So the case for the prosecution now is claiming, firstly, that Jesus opposes payment of Roman taxes. Secondly, that he's subverting the local Jewish authorities, which had been appointed by Rome. And worse, he was challenging the authority of Rome at an even higher level, uh, challenging the authority of Caesar, really, 
because he was claiming to be the rightful king of the Jews. But although these were serious charges, presumably they were presented in the same incoherent and contradictory way um, that the accusations had been made at the first trial. And, 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 and Pilate sees right through it. Luke doesn't record this, but Mark says that Pilate knew that it was out of self-interest that the Jews had handed Jesus over to him. So it must have been very obvious to, to Pilate that Jesus had no case to answer, that he was not guilty. Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. <clears throat> and that should have been an end to it, but the, the Jewish leaders had another ace up their sleeve, didn't they? They knew that Herod was in town, and he had jurisdiction over the Roman province of Galilee where they said that Jesus had also been committing these so-called offences. So Pilate passes the book to, to Herod, and that's when we get the second Roman trial, or my trial number four. You know, this was a, a clever move by the Jews, wasn't it? Because firstly, Herod ruled on behalf of Rome, so hopefully the same charges that they'd just brought before Pilate uh, would also be taken seriously by Herod, more seriously, um, clearly, they hoped. But secondly, Herod was a Jew, so perhaps he would be more sympathetic to the blasphemy charges. And thirdly, Herod had shown in his execution of John the Baptist that he wasn't too afraid to execute someone that the people regarded as being a prophet. So let's read from verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. Now I guess that Herod was more than a little disappointed that Jesus didn't perform some tricks and miracles uh, for him. And therefore you would have thought that he would have been more inclined in his disappointment to find in favour of the accusers of Jesus. But despite plying him with many questions, as we read, and despite the increasingly heated accusations that were being made, Herod, it says, could find no charge against him, and he was, he was sent back to Pilate, wasn't he? Now, I wouldn't call this second appearance before Pilate another trial, because this was basically Pilate just delivering his judgment that Jesus wasn't guilty. But there was another trial. And I think this was the one in what we sometimes call the court of public opinion. Let's read the last part of the passage from verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, 
for he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I've found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant the demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Clearly, Pilate had no intention of convicting Jesus, although it does look like he was hoping that if he punished Jesus a little, that might uh, appease the Jews. But that wasn't good enough for them, was it? And in Mark 15, um, we, we, we learn um, that, he, that they stirred up the crowd. They stirred up the crowd. Stirring up is, is, is a serious thing, isn't it? We quite often hear the expression in day-to-day life that someone's a bit of a stirrer, that someone's stirring things up. But it's a, it's a serious business, stirring up things. We're not told how they did it, but stirring is the process of influencing, manipulating, distorting the truth, and doing whatever it takes to get people wound up about something. And if you look up the dictionary definition of stirring, it, 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 um, it includes the thought of playing on people's emotions, which is often a, easier than appealing to their logic, isn't it? Because we are, by nature, emotional, emotional beings. Think about how easily emotions have been stirred up about Brexit. So, whatever they said to the crowd... They were persuaded, and this is why I'm referring to this as our final, our, our, our trial number five. There were things said, there was so-called evidence presented or referred to, and the people were influenced to the point where they were persuaded that Jesus deserved to die. And despite Pilate's appeals, as we read in verse um, 21, um, They called crucify, crucify, didn't they? They wanted him to be um, crucified. Let's just summarise the conclusions that came from each of these, these trials. Trial number one was the one we went to Mark 4, Mark 14, verse 55. They couldn't find any evidence against him, it says. <coughs> Trial number two, the one before the Sanhedrin, they could only find him guilty of claiming to be the Son of God, which, of course, we know is absolutely true. The Roman trials, or trials number three and four, neither Pilate or Herod found any basis for charges against him. And number five, although Pilate repeated that there was no grounds for the death penalty in the court of public opinion, the crowd stirred up by the Jewish leaders called for the death penalty and Pilate gave in. 
In John chapter 8, verse 46, he records that Jesus asked a question. He said, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? It's very clear, isn't it, that looking hard at his life, his enemies found absolutely nothing. He was not guilty of any wrongdoing at all. And at his trials, they had to rely on lies and politics and, and mob rule to get him convicted. Of course, as it says in 1 Samuel 16, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's God's evaluation of his son that really counts, isn't it? The father who knew every action, every thought, every motive in, the G in Jesus as a child, as a teenager, as, a, as an adult, his father knew it all. And the verse we thought about briefly earlier this morning, a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And throughout the same, um, throughout the New Testament, we find the same essential assertion, don't we? The Holy Spirit leads the, the writers to give us the same assurance. 1 Peter 3 and 18, for example, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. We're the guilty ones, aren't we? Jesus was not guilty of anything, but he died in our place so a righteous God could look at you and me as if we'd never sinned at all. And with the wages of sin, truly paid, declare each of us to be not guilty.